Now, we know that sleep is one of the essential pillars of health and that we can do a lot of things to improve it. Keep the room dark and cool, stop the dog jumping on you, etc. But what if we could take it one step further and we could actually engineer it to boost our brains? That's what Professor Penny Lewis is an expert in. She's a neuroscientist and the author of The Secret World of Sleep, and she is my guest today. Every week, we are building our best lives one episode at a time. Today's episode is brought to you by Sleeping Duck, and together, we are on a mission to help you get your best sleep yet. If you need a new mattress or bed, you can get the absolute best quality for comfort and your bag while saving thousands. It's called the Sleeping Duck, and you should totally ask your friends about it. You buy it online, it's delivered to your door. It comes with a fully adjustable comfort system that allows you to tweak the firmness independently for you and your partner all in your own home and while we're talking sleeping duck check out their bed too it's built with 50 kilos of structural grade s235 steel that's a steel beam under each individual sleeper to prevent back damaging mattress sack sleeping duck sets a new standard for sleep and being manufacturer direct it's incredible value for your risk-free 100 night trial visit sleepingduck.com sleeping duck one giant leap for your sleep. Today, we're going to explore what happens when we sleep and how we can use it to improve the hours that we're awake. Penny, how long have you been studying this for? It's so interesting. I've, and I think people are so fascinated by sleep because we, we don't really understand what's happening. Uh, I think I've been working on sleep since about 2005. So how long is that? Almost wow. 20 years now. Yeah, a long time. And can you talk me through what's happening in our brains when we sleep? Yeah, so when we sleep, it's really all about brain activity and what's happening in our brain. Um, so as we fall asleep, we find that the the patterns of neural firing, neural activity just slow down a little bit. And we go through this transition phase called stage one sleep, which is the falling asleep. And basically, it's just everything slowing down. And then we'll very quickly move into light sleep or stage two sleep. And there again, everything slows down a little bit more. Um, and you start having bursts of high frequency activity over isolated bits of the cortex called sleep spindle. So they just look like, you know, lots of manic activity really quickly um, over lo a localized area. And then... You, you'll gradually move into deeper sleep, um, what we call slow wave sleep. And here, it's not so much that the activity is just slowing down, but now you're getting this mass neural synchrony. So um, we're finding that millions of neurons in the brain are all firing at the same time and then pausing and firing again. And that gives us very high amplitude waves of electrical activity because when they fire they cause an electrical impulse and when they pause that's gone and so you'll have a peak and then a trough and then a peak again and these are at a frequency of about 0.8 hertz so that's a little bit slower than one per second so really kind of huge slow oscillations happening in the brain when when as sleep scientists when we watch these on the EEG the electroencephalography which we use to monitor electrical activity in the brain it's just amazing you know it's totally different than anything you see in wake um but then the brain will move through this slow wave phase into REM sleep which I'm sure everyone's heard of rapid eye movement sleep 
And we often call this paradoxical sleep because in REM sleep, the brain activity goes back to looking very much like it was during wake. So all that synchrony is gone. Those huge slow oscillations are gone and just different bits of the brain are all doing their own thing and it adds up and it looks like kind of rapid noise basically on the EEG signal. Um, But it's paradoxical because you are still deeply asleep in REM sleep. And then what happens is the brain cycles through those stages, light sleep, stage two, slow wave, and then REM, um, in that order roughly, um, again and again across the night. And with the getting much more of the slow wave early in the night and much more of the REM late in the night. So sometimes you don't get any slow wave at all late in the night. We think of it as if the brain was hungry for slow wave sleep. And once it's satiated, it doesn't need so much or it doesn't need any anymore. And now it's going on to dessert, which is REM, but it has to do it in this cyclical fashion. So yeah, so the brain doesn't switch off when you sleep. Instead, it's dancing a very complex choreographed dance um, of all these different sleep stages. Wow. I feel like I've just learned so much about my brain and sleep, even in the last two minutes. That's incredibly cool. How many of those cycles are, are we are, like on average having a night and how long does those, does that cycle take? So you very much have to think about averages, as you said, because every brain is different. Every night is different. This is hugely variable. But as a rule of thumb, we say four to five cycles and they're roughly 90 minute cycles. Yeah. And you referred to um, what happens in our brain when we sleep as like a spring clean. Why is that? Um, so one of the things that happens when we sleep, we know is that toxins get flushed out of the brain. Um, so um, during the day, you know, your, your brain is doing all kinds of activities. It's, it's taking in uh, information, it's controlling all your movements, so it's processing as you think, as you remember, as you um, make decisions, whatever your brain is doing. So there's lots of activity going on in there and that n- requires processes and those processes create byproducts and some of those byproducts can be toxic Um, And they do need to be flushed out and cleaned out of the brain. Um, Now, it's not the case that none of that flushing can happen when you're awake. Certainly it can, but it has been shown to be much more efficient during sleep. So, for instance, um, one toxic kind of protein called beta amyloid, which you may have heard of that's in the media a lot because it's associated with Alzheimer's disease, um, has been shown to flush out of the brain um, something like 80% more. Um, or let's say up to 80% more efficiently during sleep than it does during wake. So that's a nasty toxin. You really want to get rid of it. And the fact that it flushes out during sleep is just one of the reasons that we might think sleep is quite important. Yeah. And what are the other reasons why sleep is so important for our brain? Yeah. So this is very much an ongoing project of neuroscientists to understand, but um we we know that sleep is really important for memory amongst other things and really most of my work does focus on memory um so we know that memories get some forms of memory get strengthened across sleep so things like finger tapping sort of procedural skills think like playing an instrument playing a sport riding a bike those kind of things they actually get strengthened across sleep and with Tapping finger sequences, this has been shown to strengthen by up to 20% across one night of sleep. So people will get faster 
more accurate at that. But most kinds of memory, it's not strengthening. It's just that they don't decay as much. So episodic memories, things like, you know, what did you have for breakfast? Remember this list of Spanish vocabulary, you you know, that kind of thing. Those types of memories just decay across time. We all know that because we all know we don't hang on to these things uh, very well. Um, And that decay seems to be slowed down by sleep. So they just don't decay as much across sleep. And that can be really important because it can allow them then to have more time to integrate into other memories and to make links. So a lot of my work has been on integration of um, different new memories into conceptual knowledge that you already had. So we call these schemas. So sets of ideas that already exist in your brain. When you experience, you learn something new, we're interested to see how those new things link in and integrate in. And in order to hold on to them long-term, you really do want them to link in. And in order to kind of be able to use them in different contexts, that, for instance, use that information creatively, it's very useful if it's sort of linked into all your other knowledge somehow. So sleep has been shown to be incredibly important for that process. And does that process of the linking with things that we already know and the linking of new skills occur at a particular point of the sleep cycle? Um, So that's very much an open question and it's something that we're trying to work out. So we've been investigating, Mm. you know, which of these sleep stages that I've told you about. So we've got the stage one, the light sleep stage two, the deep slow wave sleep and the REM. So which you know, which one of these is most important for this and what do each of these do? And we very much believe that these sleep stages all have different functions, that they're all providing different kinds of processes. So for instance, um, we know that light sleep, those sleep spindles that I told you about that occur in light sleep, those also occur in deep slow wave sleep, by the way. And we know that those are very important for uh, the procedural memories that we talked about so the finger tapping the riding a bike kind of thing and they seem to be also important for the episodic memories whereas some of the linking depending on exactly how distant the links are how hard they are to make we think that REM sleep is more important for that. Wow that is fascinating and so are each of these um, types of uh, sleep or sections of the sleep cycle are any of them harder to achieve than any others are we likely to be lacking in certain stages of the sleep cycle more than others so this question really depends on your age I think Um, and it also maybe depends on your psychological state so as people age uh, they do find it harder to obtain the deep slow oscillations um kids have amazing oscillations by the way so uh little kids you know just huge high amplitude Mm. oscillations you know how so they're so deeply asleep you can sometimes pick them up and move them even think like massive neural synchrony massive brain oscillations but unfortunately as we get older these tend to decay um gradually uh so you know we still have them as young adults but as we start to age, they do decay and the sleep becomes much more broken. Uh, you don't get these nice long epochs of slow wave sleep like that. Um, the oscillations gradually decay in amplitude. So we think there's less neural synchrony going on. Um, their frequency actually gets slower and slower. So think about a piece of string that had this nice oscillation shape and then you pull the two ends and the amplitude's coming down and the period's getting longer. 
and then eventually they're just completely gone. Um, so that is an unfortunate effect of aging. In men, in general, these are gone by the age of about 60. Women get a bit more time, um, but by the age of about 70, these are generally gone as well. So, um, so yeah, it does seem that those slow oscillations maybe are a bit of a workout for the brain. Maybe, I mean, this is slight speculation, but maybe getting the neurons to all synchronize in that way to create those massive oscillations is something that requires a really healthy young brain. Um, and so as you have cell death and you have plaques and, you know, things building up in your brain over, over age, you're losing tissue, it just can't achieve it as well anymore. So you gradually lose it. Um, so that's one thing. Um, but then you also have other, other things going on. So you were asking about which stages are hard to get, but, um, it can go the other way. It can be that some sleep stages dominate. So for instance, in depression, people tend to have really a lot of REM sleep. Um, and in fact, many antidepressants will suppress REM. Some of them suppress it completely. So it's completely gone. And some of them, you know, it's just partially. So that's another thing that can influence what's going on with your sleep stages. Wow, that's fascinating. And how easy, a lot of your work is into um, sleep engineering. What is that? And what, to what extent is it possible to engineer our sleep? Um, so sleep engineering is a, a term that I coined to describe a kind of a family of manipulations that we're developing to try and influence what happens in the brain when you're asleep, usually trying to influence it in order to get cognitive and health benefits. Um, and it's actually surprisingly easy. So the, the simplest thing, uh, and this is sort of tenuous whether it's really sleep engineering, but I like it, <laughs> so I'm going to tell you about it. Um, the very simplest thing is, is just wearing an eye mask. So um, we've, we've done a series of studies of getting people to wear eye masks, and we recently published those data. And basically, we showed that just wearing an eye mask, not maybe the first night that you wear it, if you've never worn it before, you might need to wear it for a week or so. But after a week, people, people's ability to learn lists of words um, is significantly better than if they don't wear an eye mask and their reaction times are significantly faster. And when we ask them, how well rested do you feel? Um, it depends on how we do the stats, whether that's significant or not. So we, we don't make claims on that one, but it's sort of borderline. Um, and I think if we just doubled the, the study size, that, that would be significant as well. So this is such a simple thing you can do. You know, you can get an eye mask for 50p on Amazon or whatever, um, and it really does make a difference. Um, so that's a very simple, low-tech form of sleep engineering that everyone can do at home. I should say we did this work mostly in the UK and in Europe in the summer. So the sun can come up here at, you know, half past four in the morning. It starts to get light and most people don't have good curtains or blinds. So it's a real issue with light coming in in the morning. And that's the kind of time when an eye mask would help you. Also, if you've got a lot of light in your room um, at night, maybe you've got pilot lights on, on televisions or other electronics. Um, so yeah, you really want to block that out if you can. Wow. So that's the very simplest form of sleep engineering. Benny, you've blown my mind on so many levels there. But we haven't even gotten to the more complex sleep engineering, which is what we spend most of our work doing. So 
Most of our work, we're manipulating memories, how memories are processed in sleep. Um, And so we know, so we've mentioned earlier that memories can be strengthened or protected or integrated across sleep. And you might be thinking like, well, how, what is it that's happening in sleep that, that underpins that? We know um, from work in both humans and in rodents and, and some other species from looking at the brain activity, the patterns of cell activity, that the brain actually practices recently learned and even more remote, older memories while you're asleep. So you might think it's just doing these oscillations and, you know, kind of doing its thing. But actually, as part of that, it is rehearsing and practicing the neural activity associated with specific sets of memories. So supposing you teach people, uh, you know, show them a bunch of novel pictures or you get them to do a finger tapping sequence, practice that in the day and record their brain activity while they do that, then look at their night of sleep. We will be able to pick up basically a fingerprint. We can create a fingerprint of either the EEG, the electrical activity, or some people have done it with MR, so the fMRI activity of the brain when they're doing that task. And then we can look when they're asleep and we can find it again. Um, And we can also find that the extent to which the brain does that actually predicts how much the memory will be benefiting from the sleep. So whether it's improvements or it's just protection or it's integration, um, the extent the brain is practicing is important for that. So this is a very contemporary area of research and there's lots for us to understand. But I think the thing, the single thing that is the most exciting in this field is um, in about 2007, a paper came out um, showing that we don't have to just wait for the brain to practice the things we're interested in. We can control that. So we can get the brain to practice the memories that we want it to practice when we want it to practice, meaning we can control which sleep stage this happens in and how many times and, you know, all of that. Um, So this is called targeted memory reactivation. And it's super simple. Actually, you asked how hard is sleep engineering? It turns out it's very simple. So all we do uh, is we pair a sound or a smell with the, the thing that you're learning in the day. So it might be just, you know, you're seeing pictures and each picture has a sound associated, or it might be you're learning a, a tapping sequence and there's a smell in the background. And then when you're asleep, we represent that sound or that smell. If it's a sound, we represent it very softly, you can imagine. Um, and that triggers mm. the brain to actually practice that information that's paired with a stimuli. Um, and so So this targeted memory reactivation has given neuroscientists a real handle on a way to control what the brain's working on, what it's processing when you're asleep. And we know, so with this, we can selectively strengthen specific memories. Um, um, We can influence integration. So we we can help people to extract just out of a bunch of related things so they can pull out kind of a a just memory that they they can apply to to new things. Um, And we've even shown that we can influence emotional processing. So um, some of the most exciting research, in in my view, is where we've shown people upsetting pictures and then we've reactivated those in REM sleep and they rate them as less upsetting after that they've done that. And also we can see that the brain's arousal system is down-regulated after we've reactivated them. So this is kind of 
the the form of sleep engineering that we do the most um and it can be used for a variety of ways of manipulating memories penny you have just blown my mind this is incredible you must never get sick of talking about this and never get sick of working on this because it is absolutely fascinating it's so cool thank you yeah no i don't ever get sick of working on it (laughs) So you've obviously been studying sleep for 20 years, which is a remarkable um, feat. Is there anything that we absolutely should be doing when it comes to maximizing the benefits of our sleep? And is there anything that we should be really avoiding? Yeah, so it's a it's a really important question. Um, I think it's sort of, it's an important question, but it's also funny because I always find this, awkward to answer because I think we all know what we should be doing um and so it feels a little bit like it feels a little bit like you know preaching to the kind of teaching your mother to grandmother to suck eggs or or whatever um I think light is probably the big one that I like to talk about the most because I've just found for myself and for all of the people who I've convinced to try it that it makes such a big difference if you can make sure your sleeping place is really dark. And actually, I heard a statistic um, the other day, which didn't surprise me, but which was new, which is apparently the the more light that happens in that is present in your sleep, in your nighttime sleeping place, the more likely you are to have mental health disorders. And so it's a direct positive correlation, although it is relative to the amount of bright light that you get in the day. So what you want is to be getting outside in the day and having a really dark place to sleep. And it's, you're going to sleep better and you're going to have better mental health and it's just worth it. (laughs) So it's relatively small change that people can make, you know, get proper blackout blinds, wear an eye mask, um, and get outside and, and, you know, get some light, preferably in the morning. Um, so I think that's the biggest thing that people could do. But I have heard a new thing as well recently. Um, there's going to be a trial on uh, time-controlled eating. So apparently the time of day that we eat actually influences our circadian rhythms. And most of us are eating breakfast, we're eating dinner, and then we have some lunch in the middle, you know, so we're eating all day. And that doesn't help our body clock to keep a good circadian rhythm. It would be better if we didn't eat until a few hours after we woke up. And then we didn't eat, you know, from a couple of hours before we're going to sleep. And we just kind of restrict it to the middle of the day. Um, This would help our circadian rhythm. And we would probably get better more regular sleep as well so that's maybe a new idea that people haven't come across and all the other things I think people know about sleep hygiene yeah 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 they do you're right you're right we've heard about the caffeine we've heard about the exercise you know you are right and you don't sound preachy at all is there anything we shouldn't be doing anything that's an absolute nowhere maybe one thing that is worth saying is I am I would not try biphasic sleep so there is this fad of biphasic or polyphasic sleep um where people think you know based on some historical documents that it's more natural for people to sleep for a bit at the beginning of the night and then wake up and do stuff and then sleep later in the morning um but most sleep scientists I've talked to disagree with this. And actually even talking, I was talking to a historian recently and he said he thinks that 
potentially this is based on a misreading or misunderstanding of the documents or of the situations in which people were doing that. And so it's a fad. I think people, you know, often are curious and want to try that or they want to try polyphasic sleeping where they just sleep for, you know, 40 minutes or an hour and then they, they're awake for a few hours. And, and I would say, don't do that. <laughs> um, I think that that is not going to help you in the long run. Um, you're probably not going to feel well rested, energized, and it's not going to do much for your mental health either. So I would advise against biphasic and polyphasic sleeping. Super useful. And thank you so much. You are absolutely fascinating. Your work is incredible. If people want to learn more, you also have a podcast too. Where can people find you? Yeah, so it's called the Sleep Science Podcast and it's on all the podcast platforms so they can just look it up. Um, we have two full seasons on there and um, we will be restarting a new season um, we've just had a hiatus hiatus while I had a baby and deal with all of that but there will be more coming so thanks for the plug I appreciate you've had a little more to think about than the podcast that is very fair Penny thank you so much for chatting with me today it's genuinely been incredible I don't think I've ever spent so long during an interview with my mouth open so thank you for that oh thanks very much Edwina it's a real pleasure and I hope people find it useful Professor Penny Lewis is an expert in sleep. She's a neuroscientist and the author of The Secret World of Sleep. I'm going to put a link to Penny's podcast and her book in the show notes so you could check it out because I know I'm definitely going to go and find her podcast now because that has just blown my mind. I'm Ed Stott and this has been That's Helpful. I sincerely hope you've enjoyed it. If you haven't already, please leave me a review wherever you're listening. I really appreciate it. <laughs>